We have F.I. Stanley who has held two meetings here. We're glad that he can come and be with us. He's from Rogers, Arkansas. He's one of the elders there. He also helps with the, he's preached there for a long time before he became an elder and has moved there in the capacities he's working now. And we appreciate having him here for the lesson this morning. He'll be back this evening at six o'clock. But right now I'll introduce to you F.I., my brother, for the lesson this morning. Let me say thank you to GB and tell you I'm thankful that you're here with us today. And to study a lesson, we're happy for other visitors that may be with us today, but you possibly know my manner of preaching over the 10 years that I've been associated with you while GB has been here. I think the Bible was not given to us for us to have a sacred book that just sit on the shelf. And I think the Bible was given to us that we should search the scriptures daily as the Bereans did to see if these things are true. Nearly every time I preach a sermon, people get upset about some of the things I say. And the reason is because people just don't think. Earl Nightingale said, people don't think is the trouble with people. And he said, some people just think they think. And while he said, 2% of the people do the thinking for all of us. And I'm afraid that's the truth in the church. Now, I think that the pulpit is to be used to instruct people, to teach people. And I think that we do not break the bread of life by just taking some easy text and preaching a nice little lesson about it. I think that our errors ought to be corrected. The Bible said you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. I didn't just say if you got the truth, it'll make you free. You'd have to know it. And that word means understand it. Then Jesus said, study to assure yourself for proven to God, a workman needeth not to be ashamed, handling a right or rightly dividing the word of truth. There's something to do with it. And Jesus said to the people, he said, you search the scriptures, but they are they that testify of me. But you have learned that, he told them. 
How many times did he say to them, you do always err, not knowing the truth? In the 20th chapter of Luke, the people came to him and they knew that they had found him to where he couldn't answer. They said, Master, we have a question for you. There was a certain man that married a wife, and he died leaving no children. But Moses said that when a man died leaving a wife with no children, that his brother should take the wife and raise up children to him. But he said, when this man died, he had six other brothers. And each of them took this woman to wife. And they said, last of all, the last one died. She had children by none of them. Now they said, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And here's where Jesus told them they hadn't even read the scriptures. Why well, he said the children in this world marry and are given in a marriage. But those who are able to inherit that world neither marry nor are given in a marriage. He said, for they are equal with the angels. Now these people had thought about marrying, and they thought about the resurrection as just us continuing like we were, other than the people be raised back to be people just like us. But he said they are equal with the angels. He said neither do they die anymore. He was talking about a resurrection of immortal beings. Their concept of resurrection was just still the fleshly, physical, earthly state. Now they could not enjoy that passage because they didn't understand it, but they had another question. Others came to him, they said, is it lawful for us to pay tribute to Caesar? Now the law was that the Lord's money should be given and put in the Lord's treasure. So they were fussing because they paid taxes to Caesar. Jesus said, show me a coin. They showed him a coin. He said, now whose superscription is on it? They said, Caesar's. But it's not your money then, is it? You put your money in the Lord's treasure, but you don't have any money. You lost your kingdom. You don't have any kingdom. Your kingdom and your money both belong to Caesar. Conclusion, render therefore to Caesar what is Caesar's. And all through his life, they came to him every day 
with questions. And that's because that they hadn't gotten the right meaning of the scriptures. There's one scripture that we just completely miss. How many times have you heard people preach about Christ on the cross? And when you come to the passage where that he's almost ready to die, and you read the passage, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And how I've heard people standing in the pulpit talking about that the Father forsook the Son. God had promised Christ he'd never leave him or ever forsake him. Jesus said, my father is always with me. What's the matter? Somebody hasn't studied the passage. It sounds possible that way. The only thing wrong with it is not the truth. Well, a thousand years before that happened, David wrote about it and told us what it meant. If you turn to Psalms 22, the first verse is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And here a conversation is carried on. When you come to verse 10, the conversation between him and his God, he said, You've been my God from my mother's womb. He said, I was cast upon you in my mother's womb. Who's talking? Somebody is talking that is around Jesus. Somebody is talking that existed from the mother's womb. This isn't the Father and the Son talking. This is Jesus Christ who was God in the flesh. God incarnate. He had lived in this body and never had that body committed to sin. Now sin is the work of the flesh and the temptations of the flesh. But this body hadn't ever committed a sin. Now Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's ready to vacate that body. And that body is talking to that inward man. That inward man was his God. And he's saying, why are you leaving me alone? Jesus is going to leave that body there. He had a job to do in another world, in the hating realm, to destroy the devil's power, to resurrect the dead. And this body wants to know why he was leaving him. He had never said 
not be, could ever be said about any man that ever lived like it could the fleshly man of Christ. Now, if you'll just go read Psalms 22, it explains it all. What's the trouble? It sounds good the other way. Somebody made a good sermon out of it. And people liked it. So it means that if we're going to preach the Word of God, if we know the truth, it makes us preach. We've got to know it. We can't just say something. Well, not the sole goal. The elders at uh, Rogers received a letter and a request for help from a man in the church that lived in. They just divided from the church because the church, they said, were letting the women lead prayer in their classes. Of course, they had read the passage in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, and possibly one or two other places. And they had picked up all the old mistakes that we've made that G.B. and I have debated for 60, 70 years. So you know what the elders did? They said, let F.I. take care of this. So I wrote him a question or two. We started conversation. And he said, I think you're worse than the church here in Salt Lake City is. And did you know that we never have freed ourselves from our prejudice about some of these passages? Now, I just want to look at another one with you this morning just to show you the job we've got to do in almost every chapter. We can't preach it right if we don't read it right, right? We can't preach it like it is if we don't read it like it is. And too many times we just read over too much of it. Now, if you've got your book, just turn to the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. I want you to follow this with me. And I want to show you how much of what we know we just dismiss when we get over a certain subject. Paul writing the Corinthian brethren said, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. He said, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the audience as ordinances as I delivered them to you. He was praising them about it. They'd been doing what he told them to. 
But I would have you know, and the original means I will admit this, but I will have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, no use going further until we know what we're talking about here. What are you saying, Paul? that he admits, I want you to know, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man. The head of Christ is God. But you know what? That's not so in the church. Secondarily, yes, but that's not so in the church. And when I said that to class one time, you know, I thought she was going to throw me outside. Now, it's not I. It's not woman, man, Christ, and God in the church. And you know it and I know it. But we haven't thought when we read this passage. Now, the Bible says, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. One verse said, Christ is head of the church and every member in particular. Christ is our mediator. And that woman has the same relationship to Christ as that man does in the church. He's her mediator. He's her head because he's head of the church and she's a member of his body. And he's going to try to tell them that in this passage if they'll listen. Now, they were both working in the church. They were doing God's work. Now, we've got to straighten out about the woman being equally related to Christ. So he's going to have some more questions here for us. Let's look at them. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, this honors his head. Now, let's get this. It's a dishonor to Christ. For that man to cover himself when he prays or prophesies. But look at the next verse. But every woman that prays, that prophesies, with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. That is even all one as if she were shaven. Now you got two things. You put a covering on the woman's head, she prophesies, and that's fine. That honors her head. You put that same covering on man's head, and it dishonors Christ. And you know, down through the years, we've heard all of this head covering, and women used to wouldn't come to church without a hat or something on. Why? She just had to have a head covering. She's supposed to have a head covering. 
Well, what good does it do if you have it if you don't know what is for? Now that's reading the Bible with no understanding. Someone said, well, uh, when a woman covered her head, that showed honor and respect for her husband. All right. A woman puts this covering on, that shows honor and respect for her head then. Why would it be a disgrace for Christ to show honor and respect for, I mean, man to show honor and respect for his head, Christ? Now, you can't sell a bill of goods where one of them contradicts what the other one said. Now, you put that covering on a woman's head, it honors man. You put it on a man's head, and it dishonors Christ. Well, what was that covering, and what did it do? Well, if you read the rest of the chapter, it'll tell you. If you listen. But what it did, that woman praying and prophesying said, I am not under the authority of my head. It's the opposite of what people have said. And I don't know how many commentaries you pick up and it said, this just shows she honors her head. And it would be a disgrace if man honored his. Now you know that that kind of thinking isn't worth a dime. But what she said is, I can't pray and prophesy through my husband. There's no power there. My husband can't give me a revelation. My husband can't give me power. I have to bypass him and go to a higher authority. Now you put that same thing on man's head. What he said, I'm not speaking from my head, which is Christ. I need a man, head that's higher and greater than he. And that was just on Christ. But then was it for? To show that there was greater power than her husband had. Why did she need to do that? To show that her prophecy was equal with man. For in the church, Christ was her head, as well as he was man's head. But let's read some more here. We won't look at this passage a while. For if a woman be not covered, let her be shorn. But if she it be ashamed for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For man indeed ought not to be covered, not not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and the glory of God, and woman is the glory of man. For a man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. Neither was man created for the woman, 
but the woman was created for the man. That's what he said he would grant him back in the former verses. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. She had to have what? She had to have something she wasn't getting from her husband. Now that word power in the Greek, ekousia, which simply means authority. But it was to be ahead. So if she moved over and Christ became her head in the church, then she had a head that had power and authority on it. But what's the following of it? Because of the angels. Now, when our Bible was translated, the translators came to this word angelos in the Greek, and they didn't translate it. They transliterated it. They made that word angelos angel. But the first definition of the word angelos is messenger or message. What did that woman need a head with power for? Because she had a message to give, a prophetic message. And therefore she needed the kind of head that could give her a prophetic message if she prophesied. Take that woman, she'd get up and prophesy without God giving her prophecy? Certainly not. You think the husband could give her the power of prophecy? Certainly not. What's Paul telling here? That this thing has to change in the church. Now notice the next verse. Nevertheless, it doesn't make any difference who is head of who here. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the law. So what do you got? Christ is the head of that man. Christ has a head with power. Therefore, he prophesies. Therefore, he does what Christ wants him to do as Christ speaks to him. What does a woman need? She needs that same head with that same power if she's going to prophesy with man. There's no contradiction in it. It's easily understood. Now, I wrote this man in Salt Lake City, Utah, and discussed this with him. I said, now, would you allow your women to pray or prophesy? This was in the assembly. They don't look at me that way. That's where he was. And I don't fall out with my brethren because we have brought them up to this. Because one time I was more cantankerous about it than anybody. But what we've got to do, we've got to learn to take that book and to read that book for what it says before we can do what Jesus has told us to do, right? 
Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman or the woman without the man in the Lord. Why? Christ is our mediator. Prophet spoke, Joel, and he said, In that day I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Well, what does the word mean? Prophesy. It's the Greek word prophemi. It means one who speaks for another. When a prophet stood up to prophesy, he didn't speak for himself. He spoke for God. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. His word was all prophecy. The Bible said that Peter preached as the Spirit gave him utterance. He didn't have to think what he said. And so Christ gave them this kind of power. He gave it to the woman. And he said, He that prophesieth edifieth the church. And we've got a long ways to go. In the 20th century, we fuss. And let me tell you, I preached most of that 20th century. And I know that what we did, we called names. We talked about each other. We divided. We did everything but what Christ said. We never thought about the sin of division. We rather glorified it. And we broke into as many fragments as uh, glass wood if it dropped it. I hope that in the 20th century we can learn to unite. I hope that in the 20th century we have time to sit down and say, look, our answer is not in having differences. Our answer is not in simply being united, but our answer is being united in Christ. And there's no way that you're going to get a group of people, all of them understanding the same thing about the, all of the scriptures. And that simply means that we've got to allow for room for differences without dividing. Now, you know, every time I, I get up, some of them will ask me, you know, say, well, what scripture we've been teaching wrong this time? I kind of feel like that God intends for us to set people right, have people read the Bible for what the Bible said. Now, you know, we've already used up the time, but I've been enjoying every bit of it. But I guess that I could come to the pulpit every day for the rest of my life and pick up passages 
that we just read over, just missed. And let me tell you, until you learn the truth about the passage, you don't know how much you have missed. My wife's mother, one of the best women I ever knew, yet, and I married Louise back in the days for the Baptist and the Church of Christ, you know, just debated. They had to have two or three debates every summer. Ms. Cook and I have sat and talked for long hours. And you know sometimes when you set yourself against a passage, it only becomes right when you read it more. And I could read her Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Now that ought to be enough to show that baptism is necessary for the remission of sins. But then she said, well, that word for means because of. It had to mean because of, or she'd be wrong. So she had to change, or the Word of God had to change. So Jesus changed the Word of God, like old King Jehoiakim did. So, there are other passages that you can read. Paul said, you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I said, now when did we put on Christ? Well, she said in baptism, but we didn't do it until after we were saved. But that was what we were talking about in that passage. In the 16th passage, he said, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said, If not the seeds as of many, but thy seed. Now I said, If inheritance be of the law, it is no more by faith. But God gave it to Abraham and his seed. He comes on down about this. The law was a schoolmaster. The law didn't save us. We didn't err through the law. So he comes now to show us how we err. He said, you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. As many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, what are you doing? Making an heir. The next verse said, For there is neither male nor female, bond or free, Jew or Greek. For they inherited only the male under the law. The bond or free couldn't inherit it all. 
how he's saying inheritance really comes when that you put on Christ. And then in 29 he said, Now, if you be Abraham's seed, then are you Christ and heirs according to the promise. I said, Now, when did you become an heir according to the promise? She said, I don't want to talk to you anymore. What is it? We have read a passage a certain way so long until it has to be read a certain way. We don't have time to go back and see who was talking about Christ on the cross. We don't have time to sit down to see how that woman had to have power in her head because of her message. Now, I've just picked these two passages up tonight. Let me tell you, I can show you a hundred more that we missed just like that. Don't you think it's time that the preachers came clean with us and started telling us what those passages taught? I do. Now, every time a gospel sermon is preached, if we don't put Christ out in front, then that sermon was wasted. If we don't base what we say on truth, that sermon was useless. But if we don't reach out and prick their hearts of people and say, look, do you think we are here alone? Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm in the midst. Do you think he's here? If he isn't here, we're wasting our time. Now somebody said, I don't see him. Of course you don't see him because he's invisible. But one thing we do know is that he's here. And I have an idea if people were God conscious and could see Christ standing right there while a man stood here and preached and said, I want to see if you tell it right. I have an idea a lot of our sermons would be different. What do you think about that? I have an idea if Jesus stood up here to wait on the table. And if he passed those emblems to you, and if he said, this represents what I did to my body for you. This represents what I did in shedding my blood for you so you could be saved. And this is a memory that I want you to keep always in mind. You see yourself wounded in despair, iniquity, and pain at the foot of the cross. But it took that blood to wash your soul, raise you up and make you a son of God, and give you eternal life. Do you think you'd take the emblem? Do you think you'd have the Lord's Supper as nonchalantly as most of us do?
And until you get to where you can see, he is the one that's waiting on the table. The rest of us are just servants to administer to the people. I pray that the 21st century is going to be the restoration that we really thought that we accomplished in the 20th century and didn't do anything but fight. Sit out and read the Bible. Let's get every passage. There's enough books, there's enough education in the world that we shouldn't doubt anything. Just go see the facts. Now, what about your salvation today? Is it sure? Do you know? Are you a child of God? If not, you'll become one. What better time is it than now? And we're asking you to make that decision while we stand together and say,